0: Welcome to Retrofitted. I'm Rebecca Godlove and my allergies are killing me. I am currently full of Benadryl and I do not sound quite the same way that I normally sound, so please forgive me. Um, I'm gonna get through this because I, uh, I promised you that I would have this episode out, so we are going to uh, forge ahead. Last time we broke ground on a season long dig into the spiritual and sociological phenomenon that is widely known as Christian deconstruction. So if you have not listened to the first episode of season four, I recommend you doing so now. Um, that'll help you kind of understand what we're talking about today. Unlike the first three seasons, which were kind of a a mishmash of lots of different thoughts and topics and themes that I had, this is the first season in which I'm going to focus solely on one topic, so the episodes will hopefully wind up in some kind of progression toward wherever it is that I'm going. Currently, Destination is Unknown. Last time, I said that we would start out today with a discussion of Absolute Truth you can add that to the list of things I never expected to say on this or any podcast or in any other kind of public setting. But here we are. So absolute truth is by no means an evangelical Christian thing only. Absolute truth also exists in other faith systems, and uh, I do have some examples for you. Hinduism points to their god Krishna as absolute truth himself. According to their primary scriptural text, the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna states of himself that, quote, there is no truth superior to me, end quote. And like Christians, Muslims believe that the words and teachings of their prophets are inerrant, as is their holy book, the Quran. In fact, according to Wikipedia, quote, the most universal concept of religion that holds true in every case is the inseparable nature of truth and religious belief. Each religion sees itself as the only path to truth. Truth, therefore, is never relative, always absolute, end quote. Evangelicals tend to be the loudest about it, and according to religioustolerance.org, they are the group of which the largest percentage of followers strictly adhere to the idea that absolute truth exists. Now, in my opinion, um, it's because of that belief that they tend to try to influence national and local political decisions in order for future laws to fall more in line with their understanding of the absolute truth of the Bible. And that would include the definition of sin, punishment, and holiness. But what about absolute truth outside the realm of religion? Now, although philosophy and religion are frequently intertwined, they really are separate areas of study. Many schools of philosophical thought also accept the existence of absolute truth. Now, humanism, with its denial of God and soul, is an exception. Humanism cries out in the voices of Walt Whitman and John Lennon that man is not beholden to a higher power because a higher power does not exist, and people should behave as they feel led, and there is nothing beyond this reality. But again, humanism is an exception to the generalized acceptance of absolute truth within schools of philosophical thought. In fact, stating that there are no absolutes is an absolute in itself. If a person says there is no truth, does that make his statement true or untrue? Yeah, just sit with that one for a little bit or maybe I can give you a a less mind warping example. Let's say there is a car accident in the middle of a busy intersection. We're going to assume for the sake of argument that all parties involved are telling the truth. No one's worried about like insurance premiums or anything like that. Here's the deal. The truths are still going to differ based on the viewpoint. A pedestrian who saw the whole thing will certainly have a different story for the police officer than the driver would. And what about the backseat passenger who was asleep? Or the bicyclist who skirted around them seconds after the crash? Everyone sees a bit of the story, and it can certainly be stitched together into a practical string of events, but there's always going to be holes. We can never fully know motives or thought processes we can never understand fully the past experiences that lead a person to react the way he or she does in any given situation. But all of those things, motives, thoughts, and experiences still exist. How I see it is that all of those unseen things that contribute to the truth can only fully be known by God. There are hours and hours worth of more research I could put into this and share with you, but I do want to move on. I want you to understand why I believe in absolute truth because it is a foundation of my faith as well as the faith of many, many others. But faith aside, I personally can't imagine a world in which absolute truth doesn't exist. For me, it's terrifying and it would it would seem like uh, some twisted parallel universe and, and a comic book storyline in which the hero finds everything suddenly all creepy and jumbled and upside down and backwards. So... That is the groundwork being laid for the rest of the season, the concept of absolute truth. I do believe in it, and that includes right and wrong. So, I also acknowledge a massive gray area. So, please don't assume that I think every single thing that exists in the world is either divine or devilish. What many people, even Christians, don't fully understand is that the Bible actually allows for a lot of gray areas. Now, while the Ten Commandments, which Jesus himself acknowledged in the New Testament as worthy of being followed, they're pretty clear about things like not worshiping anything other than God, um, basically, you know, not having sex with anyone other than your spouse. Those are all pretty clear. But there are a lot of other things in the world that fall into kind of a nebulous region that's mentioned by Paul. And So I'm actually going to go ahead and quote this you because it's very significant i believe this is first corinthians 10 and this we're going to start with verse 23 and end with verse 33 so this is paul sending a letter to the corinthians or the church in corinth quote i have the right to do anything you say but not everything is beneficial i have the right to do anything but not everything is constructive no one should seek their own good but the good of others eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever, excuse me, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go eat, whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but for the good of many, so that they may be saved. I also want to read a little bit more of Paul's writings. This is from Romans 14. And this is verse one, and we will be concluding with verse 12, quote, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat anything must not judge the one who does for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master's servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Okay. So what was all that for? Okay. Basically, a more modern day example of of this concept would be for two people who are going out to dine at a restaurant. Let's say they're friends. They're going out to dinner. One person has grown up in a family of alcoholics and this person avoids drinking even socially because they know that they possess addictive tendencies. They don't want to become an alcoholic. Therefore, they avoid it entirely. The other person likes to enjoy a glass of wine with dinner a few times a week. This person Who drinks wine responsibly is not sinning, nor is the person who is shunning alcohol altogether. What Paul is saying in this situation is, though neither person is committing a sin or doing anything wrong, the person who is weaker or a better translation might be maybe more likely to give in under pressure or less confident. That person should be given grace and the stronger or more seasoned and tested person should be the one giving it meaning they should be sensitive to the temptations of the other. So in this modern example, the individual who drinks responsibly, probably in order to honor and be respectful of his friend and to God, probably shouldn't drink at the meal. It's not because having a glass of wine with your pasta primavera is sinful or evil or bad or wrong, but having the choice to actively make your brother or sister in Christ uncomfortable and choosing not to make them uncomfortable. That's a kindness. That's how you should be treating other people. So it sort of strikes me as interesting, especially because of those two passages sort of say really similar things about how to treat each other, how to honor each other as Christians and how not to nitpick about those gray areas I mentioned earlier. I kind of get up in arms, no pun intended, that these scriptures sort of fly in the face of a lot of Christian nationalists. Now, I see things posted on social media pages. I have I have friends on both ends of the spectrum. I have friends who are extremely liberal. I have friends who are extremely conservative. I have friends who are ministers. I have friends who are members of the LGBTQIA plus community. I have friends who identify as atheists or other religions. I have a whole lot of stuff that comes across my Facebook feed. And that's actually the way I prefer it. I do like hearing other people's opinions. I I find that sort of because of my own personality, I I, I just enjoy doing that. And I, I guess it's weird because I think many people sort of like to hear things that confirm their opinions and thoughts and belief systems, and I guess that's okay, but you never really grow as a person until you're challenged. So in that way, I kind of like to be challenged, not by like math questions or equations or anything like that. I don't I don't want to grow in that area. But anyway, I see a lot of people that are posting on their social media pages, like, you know, images of Jesus draped in the American flag and, you know, things like that, or, or, <sighs> I can't say what I want to say. I mean, I can if I want to say it, but I'm choosing not to say it. At any rate, um, a lot of these individuals, when they are questioned about this sort of content, are 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 telling other people to sort of suck suck it up and deal with it. Uh, that's just the way things are, and that that kind of <laughs> goes exactly against what Paul is teaching. Um, you know, maybe I'm not necessarily comfortable with the way that you display Jesus with your patriotism. But it's not okay for me to be not okay with it. I have to accept it because you've said that I have to accept it. I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I think that if you're on social media enough, you kind of get what I'm trying to say. Is you know the the anonymity of social media has made us really horrific people. Actually, no, it hasn't made us more horrific people, but it's made what's horrific inside of us come out a lot more easily, because it's so much easier to type something and pop it and send it onto a screen than it is to say things to real people in real time in real life, looking at their faces. Anyway, all that to say, Paul, <laughs> and by extension, you know, God. Does acknowledge that people are going to do things differently within the body of Christ. He acknowledges that look, basically, as long as you're playing by the same rules, as long as you are following the Ten Commandments, as long as you are being truthful to him, to, to God, to uh you know, to the others in your life, as long as you're on that path, there is so much within your life that that there's a, there's a lot of leeway for it, you know. One of the things my my pastor likes to say is, you know, if if you are given two great job opportunities, you know, one in say Hawaii and one in Florida, you're not going to be able to open the Bible or any religious text and actually see, hey, Florida's the way to go. <laughs> I mean, unless you're reading a Buzzfeed article and it's about the Florida van doing something illegal, in which case I would suggest you heading to Hawaii, but that's just me you're not going to find those things. So you have to make your own decisions. (laughs) You have to have, you kind of have to wade into that gray area. And that's not to say to, you know, do it without prayer or, or counseling or anything like that. And that's sort of how it is with a lot of things. That's how it is with drinking. Um, That's how it is. In my opinion, with certain things that we watch, some people, some Christians are not comfortable watching anything beyond a rated PG movie. And that's fine. I can understand why they would choose to do that. Some Christians don't have problems with rated R movies. Again, I can understand that. It's not okay for the people who watch rated R movies to be judgmental and dismissive of the people who don't And it's also not okay for the people who watch the PG movies to be critical and, you know, condemning towards the people who watch the rated R movies. That has to be something between you and God. And that gray area, that giant, you know, lake of nebulousness of gray, everything in that area is between you and God. And that's why it's a gray area. Anyway. I am apparently a special snowflake. I've been jokingly identified as one because I try to be really sensitive to the possible reactions of minority communities when I post specific kinds of social media content. Um, I do that on purpose. I actively use my talent, my skill, my education, all my training in literature and public speaking to reach as wide a net as possible when I talk about my faith on my personal pages and when I speak collectively about my church body on its social media accounts, it's important to me. And let me tell you why I understand that the scriptures say that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And that's in first 1 Corinthians one 18, but I don't want to be the one. I don't want to be the person whose translation or expression of that message is caught up and garbled by prejudice, criticism, and gatekeeping. Where was I again? Okay. Absolute truth and gray areas. Yes. Truth can both refer to a philosophical or a religious ideal. And also it can refer to the exact facts of a situation. So I'm sure by now anyone within my listening audience has heard the phrase, live your truth, right? Or if we're going to harken back to a much, much earlier catchphrase, to thine own self be true. Now, we have to remember, though, (laughs) that that totally quotable line was spoken by Polonius in Shakespeare's Hamlet. And let me tell you, if you're not familiar with Hamlet, what were you doing in, in 11th grade literature or English class anyway? You clearly weren't paying attention. Polonius was a twisted, hypocritical eavesdropper who gets himself murdered. So, I mean, I don't know that I'd be taking advice from this guy. Or if you're going to look at it another way, maybe he was true to himself and as a total tool bag, he died like he lived as kind of a creep. The problem with quote unquote living your own truth is that it's a small t truth. If we're thinking of absolute truth as a capital T truth, then you're living a version of it. You're looking at it as through a lens darkly. You're living in season one of Stranger Things, but there's three more seasons to watch. At any rate, it's not my job to convince you that absolute truth exists. However, I hope you maybe understand why I believe it exists. Anything more on this point is going to be talking in circles. Okay, the groundwork is down. I believe in absolute truth as a philosophy and as a major aspect of my faith. From here, it's not too long before we run smack dab into another conundrum, often hotly debated by, among and between, deconstructionists. It's the B-I-B-L-E. What is the Bible really? Is it God's words? Is it man's words? Is it man's version of God's words? Is it fiction, nonfiction, fairy tale? Is it folklore? Is it a collection of moralistic tales rivaling Aesop's fables? Is it a book of rules? Is it a love letter from heaven? Is it a weapon? So the truth about deconstructionists is well, this conundrum, this little bump in the road isn't just a roadblock. It's like a massive cavernous yawning canyon that stretches across eternity. Because many deconstructionists don't believe in absolute truth, the Bible's kind of irrelevant. Okay, irrelevant is is a little harsh, but let's say negotiable. It's a negotiable sort of thing. So for someone who does not believe in absolute truth, Any kind of religious text is going to be suspect. Most religious texts affirm the existence of a higher power of some kind and the rewards of obeying the laws, desires, or whims of said power, as well as the punishments for disobeying. At the very least, most holy books include some kind of direction of how to interact with the universe, nature, and other people. Now, I am not saying that all deconstructionists poo-poo the idea of absolute truth. But even if they don't flat out deny it, we do have to look at some of the things being said by some deconstructionists. That's your interpretation of the Bible. I see it differently. I believe in the spirit of the Bible, but not the truth of the stories in it. It's a real book, yes, but the whole thing is actually a metaphor. It's not the literal word of God. People wrote it, so there's bound to be mistakes. So here's the crux. Christianity is literally a belief system based on the fulfillment by one man of hundreds of years worth of prophecies that foretold not only his birth, but his life, death, and resurrection. If you put it that way, Christianity sounds a lot more like uh, like a D&D kind of campaign, which arguably to a geek girl like me sounds a little bit cooler than, quote unquote, one of several major world religions. But already there is a breakdown between Christianity and this particular branch, I guess, of deconstructionists. So if the Bible is not true, or if it's only partially true, or if it's even a metaphor, then the structures and foundations holding up three major world religions fall completely to pieces. If the Bible is not true, or any of it can be proven without a doubt to be false, then of course everything is called into question. Y'all, I am obsessed with true crime podcasts. And the one thing the defense always does when someone's charged with a horrific crime is to get the jury to doubt the authenticity and the credibility of the prosecution's witnesses. Because if you can get doubt involved, every argument will be broken down. So it goes with religious texts, even with historical eyewitness accounts. There are entire schools of thought in the fields of science, history, language and literature that have been utterly shut down because flaws have been found in their foundation. Phrenology, anyone? If you know nothing about this, please look it up. It is spelled P H R E N O L O G Y. Phrenology was a pseudoscience that actually contributed to uh, attempted genocide. Um look that up. That's super fun in your free time to, you know, discover. But here's the thing. It's also the same reason that ufologists and cryptozoologists still don't get the same kind of respect and clout as geologists or botanists. They're chasing after something that has not yet been proven that may never be proven. Is that what religion is? That is a humbling and a hard question to answer. Ultimately, yes, in a way it is. We, the people of faith, or any faith really, are relying on and trusting in one or more intangible higher powers. Our beliefs cannot be scientifically proven false, per se, but nor can they be tested using the scientific method and proven true. And for some people, that's okay. For others, it's not. It's actually frightening. The idea that man, as brilliant and capable and forward-thinking as he is, would choose, would Choose to place his fate or destiny or trust or hope or future into something completely unseeable, immeasurable, and potentially unknowable. Yeah, I get it. That could be really weird. It may not make sense. So, why is it something that persists even after millennia of scientific progression and discovery? What is faith even? What is it? Ah, uh, yes now is the part of the season where I begin the terrifying descent into early church history and begin to unravel everything I've ever known, held dear or valued. We're only going to tip our toes in for now because early church history deserves its own season, nay, its own podcast, but I'm still going to dig as deeply as I can in the future in in this season. But for the moment, a few dates on the ancient debated timeline. So Jesus is crucified and resurrected in or around 33 A.D., Even non-believers kind of know the deal here. Then we get the entirety of the New Testament, which is mostly in the form of letters written to brand new believers and churches trying to keep them on the right track, i.e. being obedient to God's commands and the example set forth by Jesus Christ. The New Testament consists of 27 books and the earliest known compilation of those books dates to 367 AD. That is over three centuries after the death of Jesus Christ and the birth of Christianity. Some scholars insist that even though they were compiled later, all 27 books were actually written before 70 AD, therefore closer to the events of the Gospels, closer to the actual death and resurrection of Christ. But other scholars presume that some of the books were written as late as 115 AD. That's a big, wide gap right there. At any rate, we're going to squeeze right in there and we're going to say that within 50 years of Christ's death, already a splinter group had broken from the main trunk of this brand new religion called Christianity. Gnostics believed in personal spiritual revelation over traditional conventional teachings. Enlightenment took precedence over repentance of sin. Jesus was not necessarily actually seen as the real literal son of God, but more of an embodiment of wisdom and heavenly enlightenment which, if you're keeping track here, sounds a lot like some branches, versions of Christian deconstructionism. Christian deconstruction hits a lot like humanism, to be honest, and a lot like Gnosticism. But again, because deconstruction is such a weird amoeba with arms and limbs all over the place, I'm not pigeonholing the entire movement into having these specific beliefs. But it is with the introduction of heresy that I close today's episode. Join me next week, or next time rather, two weeks from now, for a fun romp through ancient Greece, Rome, and Judea, as we learn what the earliest Christians did and did not believe about themselves, God, and Jesus. We, It's going to be great! In the meantime, you can reach me at retrofittedpodcast at gmail.com or download and listen to all three seasons of Retrofitted on anchor.fm. Audible, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. Please also consider uh, rating and reviewing. That kind of helps more people have access to the podcast. Uh, It helps a lot. This podcast was not ever meant to be one sided, so I do invite you to share your thoughts about this or any episode on my Facebook or Instagram pages. Just search at Retrofitted Podcast on social media channels, and I will be back with another episode in two weeks. So until then, be wise. And be well. Theme song is Late Night by Ryan Anderson.